Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Why should I go to church? Why are you here? Why did you get up this morning? It was cold. First service people, it was freezing. A little warmer for, for y'all. Yeah, about 15 degrees warmer, that's nice. But it was still cold. And you had to get dressed, put on your Sunday best or Sunday mediocres. And, and, and do your hair up and ladies, put your makeup on and get your kids ready if you got kids. And if you have lots of kids and they're young, herding cats and everything, get them into the car, then try to get here by a certain time, then get them checked into childcare. And then you come in here and you're like, so why, why come? Why come to church? What's the point? Because there's a broken mentality toward church attendance in our country. You know, after finishing off my preparation for this sermon, I was reading some news stories last night, and one stuck out to me, a quote stuck out to me. There's an atmospheric river going through Southern California right now, meaning they're going to get a ton of rain. My mom lives there, so I'm reading the story, checking in on her. And the mayor of Los Angeles, I think her name is Karen Bass, she said this about the storm that's coming right now in Los Angeles. We're fortunate that much of the storm will hit Sunday when many people are home anyway. Just an assumption now. It's Sunday. People are home. I was watching an episode of the TV show, Everybody Loves Raymond. You guys remember that one? Yes. Yeah, I'm dating myself a little bit. Good stuff. So <clears throat> this episode is about Raymond going to church. And he doesn't really like going to church because, well, it's boring. But he goes and he falls asleep. And his wife, Deborah, is talking to him, probably called him an idiot or something, right? Because that's what she does. And he's like, well, I get points. I showed up. I might have fallen asleep, but I get points for showing up. You know, and the mentality is if I go to church, I get points. If I stay awake, I get more points. If I actually sing the song, a few more points. There's no point system that doesn't exist. That's the broken mentality. Like you filled some divine obligation by showing up today and God will bless you in some way this week because of it. So if you came today hoping that God will be pleased with you for simply showing up, I pray that God uses the passage from Hebrews 10 to align your mindset with God's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would soften our hearts and open our minds to hear the truths that you have for us today. And if in any way, Lord, we are not living up to your standards, convict us and teach us and change us from the inside out. You call us to something higher you call us to something deeper, and you're leading us. Help us discern what you are leading us to do today. In Christ's name, amen. So we all know that our country, our world, is coming out of the pandemic. And whatever you think about COVID or vaccines or our political situation, something happened during the pandemic that doesn't get enough time in our conversations or in the news and I call it the pandemic within the pandemic. And it's the mental illness crisis our country is facing right now. I was recently in, in Dallas, Texas at a conference and I ran into a leading Christian psychologist, uh, one of the, the top guys from the last two to three decades. And he said to me that the experts are predicting it's gonna take seven to 10 years after COVID ended, so we're like two years into it, before 
people will all kind of recovered from the mental illness that came on during COVID. But the assumption there is that if things return to normal, it'll take seven to 10 years. Whatever returning to normal looks like, right? Because I don't think we're ever returning to what it was pre-COVID. But things are not returning to normal. For a culture in a society that prizes individualism, the pandemic has caused an incredible level of isolation. And that isolation is continuing with people staying home and watching the church service on their computers and their phones. Obviously, to a certain extent, I'm kind of preaching to the choir today because you're here. But there are people that are watching online. And, and to them, I want to say this. Look, there are obviously good reasons to stay home. You, you might have the flu. If you have the flu and you stayed home, we thank you because we don't want the flu. So that's fine. You know, if you have a compromised immune system, you might have health issues, ability to move around. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who can come, but would rather have the convenience of just staying at home and watching on, online. A few years ago, Pastor Chris was preaching and he talked about this loneliness study that UCLA did. So I went online and researched it and uh, they've been studying loneliness for many years. So they can, they can kind of develop with their loneliness scale. They can compare people over time and they can compare different age groups. And the numbers before the pandemic were pretty bad. And unsurprisingly, they continue to be concerning. Now, while I was searching for these stats, I ran across an article published by the Department of Human Health and Human Services, Department of Health and Human Services called Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Now, check out the subtitle. The U.S. Surgeon General's Advisory on the healing effects of social connection and community. The healing effects of social connection and community. It was published in 2023. And one of the findings was that the mortality impact of being socially disconnected is similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes every day. The Surgeon General himself, Vivek Murthy, concludes in his opening comments that loneliness and isolation represent profound threats to our health and well-being. In fact, loneliness and social isolation increase the risk for premature death by 30, almost 30%. I'm gonna give you a few more stats here. I love numbers. In, in 2018, 54% of the people surveyed said they, they felt like either always or sometimes that no one knows them well. And about 50% of the people surveyed in 2018 said they were lonely. But they have generational stats as well. I thought these were interesting. So boomers, we got some boomers here, born between 1955 and 1964. 50% of boomers are lonely. Okay. Millennials and Gen Xers, born between 1965 and 96, that's my range in case you thought I was in the boomer one. I'm in this one. <laughs> 70% of millennials and Gen Xers feel lonely. You want to guess for Gen Zers, those born between 97 and 2012? 80%. 80%. Four out of five are lonely. And those were the numbers before 
the pandemic. And it's worse now. God recognizes the problem of loneliness. In the garden, he said it was not good for man to be alone. We were created for relationship. Vertical and horizontal. Relationship with God and relationship with others. It's not one or the other. It's both and. God intends for Christians to be transformed through Christ-centered relationships. And I'm sure there are people here who've been hurt by the church or by people in the church. And I'm confident that I have been. I've been hurt by church leaders, church members, and I've probably hurt people in this congregation with some careless words that I've said or careless actions or inactivity. It happens. But we are called to push through that to be in community with each other. Well, one of my goals for today is that you gain a proper understanding of why you should go to church. My secondary goal is that you will respond to the message today by signing up for a small group or maybe leading a small group. For God uses these smaller, more intimate settings to bond us with others so that we can be transformed. The the two primary ways that God changes us, there are several ways God changes us, but the two primary ways is through the word, the spirit will use the word of God to change you and he uses others. And I'm gonna show you a text today where the author explicitly declares how other people will help you be more Christ-like. Now I've heard people say, why should I go to church? They'll say, it's boring. Thank you for not saying amen to that yet. Some people say, I don't get a lot out of it. Or I I can just listen at home. And the reason that people say those kinds of things is that many Christian leaders have have done a horrible job of explaining why God desires for them to go to church. So we will be discussing a passage late in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, three exhortations in this passage. Number one is, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Exhortation number two, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Number three, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now our passage begins with the word, therefore. So the first question we should ask is, What's the therefore? Therefore. In this passage, it refers to all the theology that the author has discussed in the book of Hebrews up to this point. So let's go through the book of Hebrews. You think I'm joking? I'm not. What's the purpose of the book of Hebrews? Jesus, our high priest, offers a greater sacrifice, so don't turn back to your former ways. The audience were Jews who had converted to Christianity but are being tempted to turn back, to go back to the old sacrificial system, sacrificing animals in the temple. 
And the author is trying to explain why they shouldn't go back. And his first argument in the first three chapters is that Jesus is superior to the angels. And then in chapters four through 10, he argues that Jesus as the high priest provides a superior sacrifice. We learn a lot about Jesus's death on the cross and what it meant and what it means to us in the book, in this section of the book of Hebrews. So he talks about Jesus being appointed as the high priest. The high priest was the one responsible to make sacrifices. And he talks about Jesus provides a superior offering. This is in chapters eight through 10. In chapter eight, he talks about Jesus having a more excellent ministry. And the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. And then in the, the passage right before our text, in Hebrews 9, 1 through 10, 18, he describes how the new covenant offering is superior. So if Jesus's offering is superior, why would you ever go back, right? That's, that's the point. So how important is all that theology? How, is, how important is it that Jesus is superior to the angels or that his sacrifice is superior or greater than the old covenant sacrifice? It's of ultimate importance. It's talking about his death on the cross. That's how we're reconciled to the father. That's how our sins are removed from us. So it's of ultimate importance. So now after building all that up from 1.1 to 10.18, the author moves to a section of exhortation, 10.19 to 25 our passage. Now, whatever he's about to say, it must be pretty important since it comes on the heels of some of the greatest theological conclusions in all of Christianity. The author is about to exhort his readers to action based upon the theology he has just finished explaining. If what the author has said is clear and is true, then that should impact the way that we live. On the basis of Christ's sacrifice, the writer exhorts us to make the utmost use of the blessing that has been won for us by Christ. So the connecting therefore tells us that he is building off of the theology just set forth. And after all that, we've gone through one word. Verses 19 and 20. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. You ever met someone that was really important, maybe intimidating? I, I actually don't get intimidated too easily. I, I've met some important people and don't really get intimidated by them. But this one time, I, I had just started studying at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina, and I had a meeting with the president. And I go into his office. He wasn't there. His admin gets, gets, gets me into my seat. And I start looking around, and he was a big game hunter. And he'd go around the world and he'd kill animals and then he'd put their heads on his wall. So I'm seeing all of his kills on the wall and automatically I'm intimidated as I'm looking at all these animals on the wall. Then he comes in and sits down at his desk and I don't know what it is. There's something about this man. I just got nervous. So we started talking. Have you ever heard of the concept of the infamous they? People will go, well, they say, da, 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 and they say this, and they, three out of five doctors say, well, who's the they in that, right? And it's some expert somewhere. Well, as I was talking to this guy, and he was asking me questions, and we're dialoguing, I realized he didn't talk about they, he talked about we. And then I realized I found them. <laughs> he was part of they. That's why he said we. 
And I tell you what, when you find them, you don't want to talk to them anymore because it's scary. And I got out of that office as fast as I could because I had no confidence. I had no boldness. And when you have no confidence and no boldness, you generally try to avoid those things. But why would someone need confidence to enter the holy place? Why would anyone not have confidence to enter the holy place? Well, I'll remind you of a verse that many of you probably have tattooed on your calf or your ribs or something. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 2. When Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire, and then in kind of an act of irony, God kills them, destroys them with fire. Or remembering when the Ark of the Covenant was falling, and Uzzah reaches up to stop it from falling, and then he falls dead in 1 Chronicles 13. So if you're raised hearing these stories, knowing these stories, imagine the literal fear of God these people had. So the contrast is now between entering the holy place before Christ and after Christ. Of course, the holy place now is not a literal place, but by the blood of Christ or on the basis of his blood, we can now approach God with confidence or boldness. Now, regarding the blood, blood symbolizes life. So when, when it talks about by his blood, it's really talking about by his life. In other words, if Jesus was nailed to the cross and bled and didn't die, he didn't pay for our sins. Okay, so it's not just blood that he gave, but it represents his life that he gave. And that's how he had to accomplish his mission, by dying on the cross. And that's what the author of Hebrews has been talking about from these 10 chapters so far. So we can enter the holy place, which is now the very presence of God through the veil, which is Christ's flesh. Now notice the two words describing this entering of the presence, new and living. Why those two descriptions? Well, this is new because Jesus has created a whole new situation and a whole new way to be in God's presence. The relationship is new. It's living because this new way cannot end. It cannot be dissolved. This is not the way of, of the dead animals of the old covenant or the lifeless floor over which the Levitical high priest walked. It is the living Lord himself. So it was by the, the, the rending of the veil, the flesh being torn on the cross, that the way to God was opened up. Just as the curtain was split, so Christ's body was broken for us to give us access into God's presence. Now, in case you were, you were doubting of whether or not this was really tied to the content of the preceding theology in Hebrews, notice verses 21 and 22. And since we have a great high priest, a great priest, remember we talked about Jesus being the high priest. So since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So, based on the fact that Christ is the greater high priest over the house of God, based on that, we can draw near because we are clean. Hallelujah. We are clean. Both our hearts and our bodies are clean. And this is the first of the three exhortations. So number one, draw near. Number two, hold fast. And number three, consider. 
The author himself and his audience have been meditating on Christ's work for about 10 chapters. And any sustained contemplation such as this should lead us to consider what Christ has done and should stir us to action. If you spend time contemplating on Christ's work, and after doing that, you feel apathetic or lethargic, there's something wrong. Either what you're contemplating on or your soul. There's something wrong. So what does our author think about after such reflection? Well, these three exhortations is what he comes up with. And in verse 22, he encourages us to draw near, to come into the presence of God. Something I hope we can all agree is vitally important to our faith and growth and holiness, right? Spending time with God, amen? Amen. All right, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, For he who promised is faithful. So this is the second exhortation. Let us hold fast to our profession of hope. Now, when I read that, I initially was expecting it to say, holding fast to our profession of faith. That seemed to be more natural. So the word hope kind of stuck out. So I searched for the word hope in Hebrews, and I came across a fascinating verse that I think the author wants us to read in connection to this. And that's Hebrews 6.19. I'll read it for you. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. So hope is our anchor. Hope is appropriate because it is him who we rely upon. He makes a promise, he will keep it. So this exhortation is about perseverance or some might say preservation. Perseverance is the mark of a Christian. Being a Christian is not about a prayer you prayed when you were six or 10 years old. Being a Christian is not about a profession of faith you made at some point in your life. Being a Christian is about having a living faith here, now, today. It's about growing in Christ. Being a Christian is about being transformed through the word and through community, and it's about persevering. So how important is it to persevere? Well, that's how we know who is and who isn't a Christian. So it's vitally important to persevere. Perseverance, important, amen? Amen. All right, so drawing near is important and perseverance is important. Glad we agree. Verses 24 and 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this third exhortation brings us to our main point, stimulating one another to love and good deeds. So drawing near to the presence of God, vitally important. Perseverance, vitally important. Let me get to the third one. And I think many of us, at least the way we live our lives, we treat it as an option. But it's totally and completely vital. So building off of those two exhortations, we have an exhortation to stir up one another to love and good deeds. And no one would consider the first two optional. So why do we act like the third one is? At least most of us live our lives as if it's an option. And the reason I spent so much time on the argument of Hebrews and the first two exhortations was to demonstrate how lightly we take the third one. No one takes Christ's death on the cross lightly, spending time with God lightly, persevering lightly, but this one we do. And what the author is saying here, we need to do this. 
We need to encourage one another to love and good deeds. Sniping comments, gossip, slander, individualism. Do you know why they sometimes are or usually are sin? Because they prevent us from fulfilling this exhortation to encourage one another. Think about some of your actions this past week. Was it truly stimulating the hearers to good deeds? Now, the word that's here that's translated stir is quite odd. I've used phrases like stir or stimulate. Uh, the only other time it's used in the New Testament, it's used in a completely different way, Acts 15.39. The context is, is Paul and Barnabas are kind of disagreeing about whether or not to bring John Mark on the second missionary journey. And it says, and there occurred such a sharp disagreement. That's, that's the word that was translated in Hebrews, stir up or stimulate. There was such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So the word there in Acts means a severe argument based on intense difference of opinion. And that's normally what the word meant when it was used in Greek writing, Greek literature. So because of that, it's kind of out of place in our text. And that would impact the readers all the more. In our text, the word means to rouse to activity or to stimulate a change in motivation or attitude. We are to be motivators. Now, notice this was not said to pastors, but to the congregation in general. This is not for the super spiritual, but for everyone. Everyone is to be a motivator to good works. So the word stir, the King James translates it provoke. And I really like the word provoke there. That might be, say more about me than you need to know, but provoke. And it, it usually has a negative connotation, like in Acts 15, 39. That's intentional, using a word that's typically negative, but to mean it positively. So what will be an example of negative provoking? Glad you asked, because my nickname in seminary was the instigator. <laughs> so I was trying to think of uh, examples of negative provoking, and I, I thought I would, I would wear this when I preached. <laughs> Booing, yes, finally. Tony Romo jersey. I thought about wearing this. I thought maybe I'll like drape it over this so you have to look at it the entire time. And, and you know, the Cowboys, such a strong reaction. You have booing. You have people who are like leaping for joy in their hearts right now because they see a Cowboys jersey and not a Kansas City Chiefs jersey, amen? So then I thought about maybe I'll wear this jersey. The goat. Strong reactions, okay? That would be negative provoking. And that's not what the author is talking about, of course, right? He's not talking about negative provoking. He's talking about positive. Now notice how he begins this exhortation in verse 24. And let us consider. That word consider means to think about carefully. It's also used in Hebrews 3.1, where the author says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. So this is not like a flippant or quick thinking about something. This is more like contemplation, more like meditation. We would never say to someone, overlook Jesus. We're not supposed to overlook each other either. So what does this tangibly mean to consider, I like, I like this word, or strategize how we can provoke one another to love and good works. 
Well, first of all, it means we have to be close enough to each other to know how each of us needs to be provoked. People that are close to you in your life, you probably know how to push their buttons, right? Like a sibling or a spouse. Like you know the word, a sentence that you could say that they would just react to. I'm looking out, and I know, I know some of you, and I know some things I could say that would cause a reaction, you know, in a negative way, because I know you well enough to do that. That's what's going on here, except with a positive way. And if, and if you don't know me well enough, you might be thinking you're provoking me to love and good works, but you might be provoking me to anger. So we have to know each other. Now, I have a friend in this church who is really, really good at this. He... When we meet for lunch, we used to meet regularly for lunch, and when we'd meet for lunch, he usually would get there about 10 minutes early to think about how to provoke me to love and good works. And I remember about eight or nine years ago, I showed up to a lunch with him, and I had just published a book, and I appeared like on 14 radio stations that month and a couple of local TV stations. And so his question for me is, how are you protecting your heart from pride? Or how are you making sure this doesn't become part of your identity? I hadn't even thought of those questions. I was just enjoying the moment, you know. He asked me that question. I gave him some sort of trite bumper sticker answer in the moment. But then we were meeting two weeks later. For two weeks, it was running around in my head over and over and over. That's really all I could think about. I'm waking up in the morning, opening up the Bible, doing my Bible study. And all I could think about is this, this question he asked me. Because he was strategizing. It wasn't a generic question, right? He couldn't have asked you that question today. He couldn't ask me that question today, but he knew me well enough to know what was happening in my life and how to ask a question that would get right into my heart. He strategized. Here's a little test. Get someone in your mind who inspires you to want to be a better Christian, to live a holier life, someone who spurs you on to good works and to love others. Get someone tangibly in your, in your, in your thoughts. Now, here's the sad part. Some of you, probably most of you, either had a hard time thinking of someone or only thought of one or two people. And we should be able to name dozens and dozens of people, but many of us really can't. You know why? It's because I have failed. I failed you, and you failed me. And we can't wait for someone else to do it first until, some, until someone else initiates with us. When we stand before the throne of God, what's our excuse going to be? I was waiting for someone else to spur me on first. That's not going to go over too well. We all need to step up and do this to spur on one another. Now, in verse 25, we have the popular verse. Uh, imagine all that great meat that we've talked about so far, and the thing people focus on is not forsaking the gathering of one another. Um, so, so how are we to spur one another on? if we don't see each other, if we aren't spending time together. We can't. We can't, not effectively. Relationships need to be intentional. Imagine just saying hi to your spouse twice a week for the next six months. How well would you know that person? You wouldn't. You wouldn't know how to provoke them to love and good works. And if you think you were obeying this exhortation by coming to church on Sunday morning, then you've totally missed the point of this message. Totally. The not forsaking the gathering is specifically put in contrast using the word but to encourage one another. This is actually not the first time the author used the word encourage. In Hebrews 3.13, this is the key verse. 
for what I want you to pull away today. Hebrews 3.13. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that, here's the reason he wants us to be encouraging each other. So that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He revealed his excitement about this exhortation of encouraging people back in chapter three, but we see the magnitude of it in 1025. But notice the reason he gives in 313. So we won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, so why do we need each other? As Robert Robinson wrote in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is our natural disposition, to wander from God, to leave the God we love. But the author has a cure. He has a remedy. It's there for you. And the cure is not to you to get alone with your Bible. The cure is not for you to just show up on a Sunday morning. The cure is each other, being in community, not being isolated. We need each other. One scholar said it like this, both here and throughout the the entire letter to the Hebrews, the author challenged the community of readers to devote themselves to watching out for each other. Collective responsibility was the order of the day for the author. Paul puts it a little differently in Ephesians chapter three, verses 17 to 19, when he says that he's praying that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, What is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So Paul wants you to know the love of God and that love of God surpasses knowledge. He wants you to know something you can't know. That's what he says. I want them to know something they cannot know. So how can you know something you can't know with all the saints? because you experience it with the saints. Do you want to experience God's love, feel God's love, have a better knowledge of God's love, height, breadth, depth? It's with each other. It's with all the saints that you get that. So we must be meeting together. How often? Often enough to know each other, to know each other enough to be able to encourage each other appropriately. Sunday morning won't cut it. Showing up late to the small group and leaving once the the teaching is done won't cut it. We need time together to spur one another on. When the service is done, your job begins. When this service is done, your job begins. I love talking about sports, politics, my job, but that's not why we're here. It's fine to talk about those things. But how about some other questions or topics? Things like, what have you been reading in the Bible? You don't really want to ask that question probably unless you're actually in the Bible yourself, right? Because then they might reciprocate. What has God been teaching you recently? What did you think of the sermon today? Don't ask me that afterwards. (laughs) Are you reading any good books that have encouraged or edified you? See, notice those are kind of generic. They're kind of generic because I'm talking to a couple hundred people. The best things are contextualized for the person you're talking to, but you have to know them to ask those kinds of questions. And I know these questions can be intimidating, especially if you're an introvert, but God has exhorted us to do this 
anyways. And the author's final words in verse 25 references the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. And see, that's important because he doesn't want us to wait to do this. Do it now. Do it today. This is not something for you to do next week. It's something you can do literally right when the service is done. You can have these conversations with people. So why this message and why today? Because I want you to commit to the church, to Christ's church. I want you to invest in the people in this body. Pastor Jeff needs you to invest in him. His wife, Michelle, needs you to invest in her. Pastor Malcolm and his wife, Tiffany, they need you. I need you. My wife needs you. That's what the word says. Sunday mornings won't cut it. Find a place to invest in and encourage. Stimulate each other to love and good deeds. Don't cause others to stumble or be stifled. Going to church is not about what you can get. It's about what you can give. Going to church is not about what you can get. It's about what you can give. So please recognize that holding to your profession of hope, persevering in the faith, and drawing near to God, being in the presence of God, are both in parallel to provoking one another to love and good works. So don't neglect this, this exhortation. God is calling you higher. God is calling you deeper. And one way he does that is through community. I want you to experience the depths of God's love. I want you to grow in holiness. And showing up to church is good, but it doesn't accomplish what God has exhorted us to do. Going to small group is good, but attendance doesn't necessarily grow you in Christ. Be intentional in these set settings. Definitely show up because we need to be with each other. But when you show up, seek to edify those around you. Ask probing questions. Be real and authentic. That is the exhortation in Hebrews 10, 24. So I hope that when this is done, you'll go out there and you'll be able to find a small group that you can connect with, some people that you can connect with. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray, God, that you would move us to action, that we wouldn't just be hearers, but would be doers of your word. Now, God, as we leave this place, I pray that you would continue to bless our lives, bless our relationships. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.